0: We come again to our study of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Let me add my welcome also to the ladies who are here with our woman's auxiliary. And uh, while you're looking for Matthew 5, it won't be too hard to find, I'm sure, I want to uh, welcome also a special guest who are with us this morning. I'm not sure where they are. Uh, You remember some months ago we had Tom Harris from New York. Uh, Some of you who were at Grace last night heard him speak. Uh, Tom, are you here today? Tom is here. He has two fellows with him, friends of his in his ministry. Irving is here, and Don, Don Healy, and Irving Rivera. All right, let's welcome them as well. And uh, they're they're going to have to leave early because uh, at noon today they're going to be holding a an evangelistic rally in Bruin Square at UCLA. And what's going to happen is Jubilant Sykes is going to sing to draw a crowd. And then Tom is going to preach the gospel right on the square there at UCLA. And that's going to be between 12 and 1 o'clock, I think. So we ought to remember today to pray for them that the gospel going out there is going to touch some hearts. That'll be a wonderful time. Looking again at Matthew chapter 5 and coming to the third beatitude, let's look down at verse 5. Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, I want to just speak to you, if I might, generally about the context of that statement so you get a feeling for what, it, what effect it would have on the people who heard it. This would be a very shocking statement to a Jewish audience. If you look back to verse 1, you note that Jesus is in a mountain, a hillside. He sees a multitude of people, of course, Jewish people. And he speaks to that multitude, and particularly directing his thoughts to the disciples, but undoubtedly is heard by the multitude as well. And for him to come and to speak and talk the way he talked as he began this sermon would be a great shock to those Jews who were hoping in their hearts that he might be the Messiah. If you remember in chapter 4 of Matthew, there is a great emphasis on his miracle ministry. Back in chapter 4, verse 23, look at that verse for a moment. Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And His fame went throughout all Syria. They brought unto Him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, those who were possessed with demons, those who were epileptic, those who had paralysis, and He healed them. And there followed him a great multitude of people from Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and even from beyond Jordan. So the whole of that part of the world is aware of the miraculous power of the Lord Jesus Christ. As a result of that, they're very, very interested in the fact that he might, in fact, prove to be the Messiah. And so as he speaks on the mountainside where he gave the sermon on the mount somewhere on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee to this multitude of Jewish people, what they want to hear is a far cry from what they actually hear him say. And that doesn't become any more clear at any point in these Beatitudes than it does in this third one about meekness. Now what do we mean by that? Let me give you a little background. A little over a half century before Jesus was born, about... 63 BC, Pompey annexed Palestine for Rome. That is, made Palestine a Roman territory. And he did, in doing this, bring Jewish independence to an end. Now, the Jews like to think that they were slaves of no man. You remember in, in John's Gospel, they say to Jesus... In John 8, we have never been servants of any man, which, of course, was ludicrous because at that time they were under Roman bondage. Prior to that, they had been under the Greek bondage, which was broken in what we know as the Maccabean Revolution, which took place between the Old and New Testament. So they had been under a lot of bondage. They had forgotten their Egyptian captivity, had they? They had forgotten their Babylonian captivity. They were oppressed historically throughout most of their days. And at this time, were under Roman bondage. They had gained their independence before the Romans put them in bondage again in this Maccabean revolution. There was a guy by the name of Judas Maccabeus, had a group of brothers, and they struck against Greece, broke the power of Greece, and brought about Jewish independence, which was a great thing for them. You know how much they appreciate and enjoy it now and how they watch to maintain that independence that they have in this particular period of history. So they had that same feeling. Then Rome came, put them under their power, and it was very oppressive. The, the land was then ruled sort of by a combination of, of the governors that Caesar put there and the Herodian kings who were really owned in great measure by the Romans as well. So they were under Roman control. Virtually all of their land, all of their political processes were under the control of the Romans. Now the whole story then sort of takes shape as Jesus stands up and they assume him perhaps to be one who can be their Messiah and for them what that basically means is he will break the power of Rome. they're looking for a political Messiah they're looking for an economic Messiah they're looking for a materialistic kingdom the, the whole idea in their minds is that Jesus is going to bring the kingdom even in Acts chapter 1 in verse 6 the disciples say to Jesus after his death after his resurrection after three years of his teaching They say to him, are you at this time going to bring the kingdom to Israel? They're still waiting for a materialistic kingdom. They're still waiting for a political kingdom. They're still waiting for Jesus to break the yoke of Rome. And that's how they defined the kingdom of God. They didn't see the kingdom of God, the Jews didn't, as a spiritual kingdom, as an internal kingdom. As the rule of God in the hearts of men, they saw it as breaking the occupation of the Roman oppression. And so when Jesus first started to preach, do you remember what his message was? Repent for the what? Kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this would only heighten their expectation. This would only increase their their thought that this might indeed be what Jesus was going to do. He was going to move in, overthrow Rome, and set up Jewish independence through some kind of military action. Now among the Jewish people, uh, this kind of attitude was basically held by most everyone. Um, particularly the Zealots, who were the Jewish nationalistic party, and they were going around in secret terrorist acts, murdering Roman soldiers and that kind of thing, trying in their own way to overthrow Rome. And uh, they were very zealous for this, but even the Pharisees were looking for an overthrow of Rome. Even the Sadducees were looking for a sort of materialistic kingdom. And so that was the expectation. Now, with that in your mind, listen to what Jesus said. He announces Himself to the world in this great way. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And then blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now that sounds like the opposite of what they would have hoped to have heard. Blessed are the confident, for they will inherit the kingdom. Blessed are the bold and the courageous and the forceful and the powerful. Blessed are the proud and the zealous, And when Jesus says the very opposite of that, he really began the process that all ultimately ended in his crucifixion. He begins by announcing that the character of his kingdom is poverty of spirit. The character of his kingdom is mourning. The character of his spirit is meekness. The character of his spirit, if you look over into verse um, nine, is peacemaking The character of those in his kingdom is that they are persecuted and they endure it without retaliation. This is the very opposite of what they had wanted to hear. The zealots and the Sicarii, who were a group of sword bearers who went around sort of as the paid assassins of the zealots, wanted to act against Rome. And I know you remember that in 70 A.D., the Romans finally crushed Jerusalem. And they did that as a final reaction to the series of continual terrorist acts. Finally, about 130 A.D. to 135 A.D., Hadrian destroyed the whole nation in a sense, 985 towns in Galilee were slaughtered, myriads of Jews that remained from the destruction of Jerusalem where 1.1 million of them were massacred, were then later killed. And this is the result, this is Rome's final retaliation on this sort of terrorist activity and the threat to overthrow them in terms of occupation in Israel. So what the Romans had done caused the Jews to want a political, nationalistic, materialistic, earthly kind of king. And when Jesus came and spoke the way he spoke, he proved to be a terrible disappointment to them. And that is why when you come to the point of his crucifixion and trial... The people cry out, We will not have this man to what? To reign over us. This is not the kind of king we want. We're not interested in that kind of king. Now, when he says in verse 3, The meek shall inherit the earth, they just really can't respond to that in a positive way. You see, they were basically ignorant of the servant character of Messiah. They did not understand, and for the most part still do not understand Isaiah 40 through 66, which presents the great character of Messiah as servant. And even when Jesus, you remember in Luke 4, preached in the synagogue and said he had come to be a servant and so forth, they did not understand that there either and would have killed him in that very place. They didn't understand the servant attitude of the Messiah. Self-righteous pride, Jesus was saying, has no entrance into the kingdom, only meekness, only humility, only brokenness, only sorrow. And by so saying, he was speaking about a kingdom that had no appeal to them. Now, to sum up sort of the spirit of the Beatitudes, just to get you in the flow a little, what Jesus is saying in this set of Beatitudes and then in the whole Sermon on the Mount is that it isn't the self-sufficient, self-righteous, proud, strong, confident, satisfied, rebellious people who enter the kingdom of God. It is the broken who are broken over their sin. It is those who mourn over the violation of God's law. It is those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. It is those who are merciful and pure and peacemaking, who are persecuted, reviled and slandered and never retaliate. Those are the real kingdom citizens. Those are the ones who really know God and enter into His family. So this is a revolutionary message, totally revolutionary. And I want us to understand it and to see it applied to our own hearts even today. Now, let's take the word meek to start with as we look at the text. Blessed are the meek. Now, that's a very interesting word. The basic idea of that word conveys to us, perhaps in our particular culture, a certain kind of weakness. In fact, if you were to look that word up as I did in the dictionary, you'd probably be very dissatisfied with the dictionary definition of it. The dictionary defines that word meek as cowardly. Cowardly. In fact, it says deficient in spirit and courage. We say someone is meek when they're sort of like a a milquetoast personality. They've got no courage, no guts, no fortitude, no strength of character and so forth. But that is not what the Greek word means at all. That is not the intent of it. Let's find out what it means by just taking a little bit of a look at it. We don't have a lot of time to develop fully what uh, options we have in expanding its meaning. But the bottom line in the word means gentle. The bottom line means gentle. It can be sometimes related to words like mild or even a word like soft as opposed to hard. But the idea is best conveyed, I think, in one word, as the word gentle. And it has the idea of someone who is patient and very tender-hearted and very compassionate and considerate. Now, this is the attitude of one who shows a cheerful, quiet, willing obedience and submission to God. This is not a proud, boastful, rebellious, I'll demand it my way, I'll do it my way. I'm going to approach everything the way I want to. I'm not going to let God crowd into my life and tell me what to do. It's not that. It's the very opposite of that. It is not self-centered. It is not rebellious. It is not willful. It is not stubborn. It is gentle. Now, sometimes the word is used in non-biblical usages to describe a soothing medicine. A medicine that is very soothing and brings about a positive result in the matter of illness. Other times we find that very same Greek word used to speak of a gentle breeze. We have found it in other writings where farmers use the word to refer to a colt that has been broken. And basically, if you sum that all together, you can see that it's a wind, that it's a gentle wind, a gentle breeze, as opposed to, say, a hurricane. It's a broken colt that is docile and able to be ridden as opposed to a wild horse that bucks the rider off. And what we can conclude from that is that there is an inherent concept that's very rich in this word, and I want to put it to you this way. It means power under control. Now, wind has power and a horse has power, but the idea of meekness, the idea of this particular term, price, is that that power is under control. It does not speak of weakness. It does not mean that a person is, is without courage or without fortitude or without strength or without character. It simply means that a person has power under control. It is not impotence. It is power under control. And the idea of it is this. I realize I have certain power. My will has certain power. My my physical body has certain power. There are things I can do on my own. But the attitude of the person who is meek is that my will and my power and my desires and my physical forces are all brought under control, and the controlling factor is the will of God. That's the idea. To put it simply, it is the taming of the lion and not the killing of the lion. The lion still has all its force and all its power and all its strength, but that is controlled. And that's the idea. So when you see the word here, praise, the word meek, it is not that it means something that's related to weakness. It means something related to controlling power. For example, do you remember this verse, Ephesians 4.26? Be angry, and what's the rest of the verse? Sin not. Now what is that? That's being angry, but having your anger under what? Control. Is it ever right to be angry? Sure. There are many things we ought to be angry about. We ought to be angry about sin. We ought to be angry about that which defames and dishonors the name of God. There should be a holy, righteous indignation. But we have to control that so that our anger does not turn to what? Sin. Now that is meekness. It is that controlled anger. Look in your Bible for a moment to Proverbs chapter 25. And let me see if I can't show you some illustrations of this so that it will sort of find its way deeply into your thinking. In Proverbs 25, verse 28, we read this. He that has no rule or control, he that has no control over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. In other words, in ancient culture, cities had to have walls or they'd be plundered by marauding bands of people traversing the land. So a city had to have walls. That was the only way it could be protected against its enemies. And what he is saying here is the person who has no control over his own spirit is vulnerable to every enemy that comes along. The spirit, just like the city, has to be protected with a wall of self-control. We cannot be out of control by having no rule over our own spirit. In Proverbs 16, I want you to notice another verse that compares well with that, verse 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he who controls his spirit than he who takes a city. Now, this is an illustration of the same kind of thing. It is power under control. You have power in your life. You have power in your emotions. You realize that, don't you? You can use your emotions to affect all kinds of things. The emotion of anger creates all kinds of things. The emotion of joy creates all kinds of things. The emotion of sorrow can have all kinds of ramifications in the people who are around you. All of your emotions need to be under control. All of your your physical desires need to be under control. All the power of your personality and the controlling factor is... The word of God. One writer puts it very beautifully. He says this. This meekness is a fruit of the spirit which is found upon the soil of spiritual poverty, contrition and mourning. It is a noble flower which grows out of the ashes of self-love on the grave of pride. On the one hand, a man sees his own utter ruin, his unworthiness and misery. On the other, he contemplates the kindness and graciousness of God in Christ Jesus. The internal characteristic is a disposition of heart which through the keen perception of its own misery and the abounding mercy of God has become so pliant, gentle, mild, flexible, and tractable that no traces of its original ruggedness of its wild and untamed nature remain. Power under control. It is the opposite of violence. It is not violent. It is the opposite of vengeance. In fact, to put it in the words of Hebrews 10.34, the meek person has learned to accept joyfully, and I quote, the plundering of his possessions, knowing that he has a better possession even an abiding one. That being with God. This person has died to self. This person does not get angry because he's personally offended. This person does not get violent because his will cannot be fully expressed in the way he wants to express it. He holds no grudges. He never sulks over injuries. And believe me, as you know and I know well, this is not a natural thing. This is something that God does in the heart. In Psalm 35, I want to draw you to another passage, and we're going to look at several of them in the little time we have left. But in Psalm 35, listen to verses 12 and 13 and get a little feeling for the heart of David. In verse 12, They rewarded me, David says, and David did many good things, many beneficent things for people, and yet he had many enemies. Anybody in a position of prominence has many, many enemies, and there are many of them enemies purely out of one thing, and that is jealousy and envy. And David, because he was king and so blessed of God, had many jealous people who were seeking his harm, and many of them had been people whom he had helped greatly, and they had turned against him. So in verse 12, he says, they rewarded me evil for good to the spoiling of my soul. They literally devastated my own soul. He had deep emotional pain because of the way he's treated. I can identify with that. You will too sometime in your life when you're betrayed by the people who love you, you think love you the most, or when you're betrayed by people that you love very deeply. You'll feel that emotion when you pour your life into someone and they turn on you. And that's where David was. And something wells up inside of you that's very angry and very hurt and very vengeful. And David, because he was the king, was in a position to do anything he wanted. He had the absolute right of life and death over anybody. But I want you to notice his response in verse 13. Even though this had been done to him. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. What do you mean by that? When my enemies got sick, I put on sackcloth. Why did the Jews in the Old Testament put on sackcloth? To do what? To mourn and what? And pray. I humbled my soul with fasting and my prayer returned into mine own bosom. What did he do with his enemies? What did Jesus say? Love your enemies. Pray for them that despitefully use you. That is power under control, folks. With one word, he could have wiped them out. With his power as king. Go over to Psalm 37. Last week we heard Sam Erickson refer to Psalm 37 several times. Verse 11. And here we're going to find where Jesus found this truth. Psalm 37, 11. The meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Who are the meek who inherit the earth? Go back to verse 3. Here is the, here is the composite picture of a meek person. Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He'll bring forth thy righteousness as the light, the morning light, thy justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for him. And don't worry because of the one who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked devices to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any way to do evil, for evildoers will be cut off. That word means killed. But those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the earth. Yet a little while, and the wicked shall not be. Yea, thou shalt diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. In other words, don't get uptight about your enemies. Do this. Verse 3, trust. Verse 4, delight. Verse 5, commit. Verse 7, rest. Verse 8, cease from anger and wrath. And that's meekness. Those who trust, delight, commit, rest, cease, they're comforting. You can get uptight about your enemies. You can get angry with uh, those who oppress you and those who speak evil against you. You can even get angry with God. But if your power is under control and its controlling factor is God's will, you're going to accept all that and say, Lord, it's your problem to deal with that, not mine. Now that was very foreign to the people to whom Jesus spoke. So we're not talking about flabbiness of character. We're not talking about lack of conviction. We're not talking about a wishy-washiness in personality. We're not talking about some kind of human niceness. We're certainly not talking about impotence and cowardice. What we're saying is, look, whatever happens in my life, I want conformed to the will of God, and I have such a confident trust in God that He'll take care of everything. It's not a passive acceptance of sin, but it is anger controlled by God. It's holy indignation. And Jesus is the right example of that. In First Peter, do you remember where it says, being reviled, he reviled not again? Remember that? Being threatened, he didn't threaten in return. He was never violent with those who spoke against him. The only time Jesus ever was violent was when he twice cleansed the temple. Remember that? And on both occasions, he was not defending himself. He was defending whom? his father he said you have made my father's house a den of thieves in defense of God he had a right to holy indignation but of all the times and all the occasions and all the places where they spoke evil against him he never once retaliated they spit in his face they pulled his beard out they slapped and punched him until his face was puffy black and blue and he was in pain They whipped him. They jammed thorns into his head. They mocked him. They did everything they could possibly do to cause him pain. And in all of that, he never retaliated. And he gave us an example of one who commits his soul to the keeping of the one who is his maker and leaves the vengeance to God. Did he have the power to retaliate? Oh, yes. With a word, he could have instantly turned them into ashes. But his power was under control. The greatest illustration of self-control there is. He never used his power for himself, never, no matter what was done to him. So this is what meekness means. If you wanted to use another term for it, we could say it's humble self-control. It's humility. It's the kind of attitude that says, I don't have to fight back and I don't have to retaliate and I don't have to get vengeance. Now, those things were things that the Jews were all into doing. And when Jesus said, these are not the characteristics of people in my kingdom, what he was saying to them was, you may think you're in God's kingdom, but the truth is you're not. You're not. What are the things that make you angry? I hope they're the things that offend God, not the things that offend you. Let me give you some illustrations. How does this meekness manifest itself? Let's go to Genesis 13. And let's see if we can't see some people who show this kind of attitude. Genesis 13, verse 7. Here you have Abram, before his name was changed to Abraham. And Abram left Ur of the Chaldees, his hometown, which would be up in the Mesopotamian area, quite a ways from the promised land to which God had taken him. He left Ur of the Chaldees and he took with him his nephew, whose name was what? You remember his nephew's name? Lot. And they had a family disagreement. Frankly, Lot was nothing but a hitchhiker. Abraham had the covenant. Abraham had the promise of God, as the prior chapter indicates. But in verse 7, there was, a, there was a fight. An argument between the herdsmen of Abraham's cattle and the herdsmen of Lot's cattle. And the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelt then in the land. They're now in a foreign land, occupied by Canaanites and Perizzites, and they've got certain territory there, and they're having an argument. Now, what, what right, what power did Abraham have? Abraham could have said, look, Lot, go home. You don't have any divine right to be here. I invited you to be here as a guest out of grace, out of kindness. Now you're fighting with me about the cattle, about the land they occupy and are grazing on. And this argument came because I guess some cows were eating the other guy's grass. Now, what is going to be Abram's response? He has the power to control the situation because he has the right and he has the covenant from God. And Lot is strictly, as I said, a hitchhiker. Here was Abram's response, verse 8. He said to Lot, Let there be no argument. I beg you, between me and you, and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we're brothers. And this reminds us of another beatitude that says, Blessed are the peacemakers, doesn't it? Isn't the whole land before you? So separate yourself, I beg you, from me. Don't be so close to me so we don't have this problem. Now, watch what he said. If you want the land on the left side, I'll go to the right. If you want the land on the right side, I'll go to the left. Amazing. What's he saying to him? Take your pick. What a kindness to a very ungrateful nephew. Abraham had the power, but the power was under control. And let me tell you something. Abram did not live his own life simply to get exactly what he wanted. That's meekness. didn't mean he didn't have the power. It meant he had the character to submit himself to a peacemaking process that might result in him getting the inferior land. But that was all right. Because he trusted in whom? In God to make things right. Because he knew he was under God's control. Not only is Abram a good illustration, but another very good illustration is Joseph. Joseph... Became prime minister, you remember of Egypt? Did Joseph have the power to avenge himself against his brothers? Remember when all his brothers came down, they were starving to death. He could have avenged himself. He could have slaughtered them. But instead of that, the very brothers who had sold him into slavery, he made sure had all the food they needed. How about David? In 1 Samuel 24, there's the most fascinating account. Saul tried to kill David many times. In fact, he'd get David in the palace, and David would be playing on his harp and soothing Saul and all of a sudden the demons would take over Saul and he'd grab his spear and pin David to the wall. The spear would be sticking in the wall and David would be splitting out the door. He had tremendous reflexes because Saul was a was a hulking guy and no doubt as a trained warrior could really use the spear and especially at close range. But David always avoided the spear. Well, one time in 1 Samuel 24 David happened to stumble into a cave and Saul was asleep in the cave. David found him there. And um, with one stroke of his blade he could have cut off his head. Or he could have nailed his skull to the floor. Or he could have driven a sword through his heart. And then he could have taken the throne. Would he have had the rightful access to the throne? Sure. Was it not Jesse? Was it not... The son of Jesse, who was anointed by Samuel as the one who was to be the king? Sure. He had the right to that. He had the power. There was Saul sleeping. He had the right. But he never did it. What he did was cut off a little piece of Saul's robe. So that later on he could show him that he had come that close and spared his life. Why would he not take his life? Because he never acted to control his own destiny outside the will of God. Would it have been a sin to take his life? Sure. Murder. Murder. Would it have been a sin for Joseph to wreak vengeance on his brothers? Yes. Would have been murder. Didn't matter what they did to him. Would it have been a sin for Abram to demand a certain amount of land and give the other land, the inferior land, a lot? Sure, because it would have been the sin of selfishness. In each case, these people had the power, but the power was controlled by a character that was committed not to self-centeredness, but to doing the will of God and trusting God to bring it to pass. I think of 2 Samuel 16. Later on in David's life, Absalom, his son, had forced forced David into the wilderness. Absalom wanted to bring a coup and overthrow his father and become the king, so David runs out of Jerusalem and he's hiding in the bushes. And one of Saul's men, named Shimei, he comes along and he starts cursing David. He's laughing at him. Look at this, the king of Israel. He's cursing him and throwing rocks at him. Now, Abishai, who is David's nephew, says to David in 2 Samuel sixteen nine these words, Let me go over and take his head off. And he's trying to defend his, his king. And you know what David said? Let him alone. Let him alone. Now, wh- why is he saying that? Because he won't act in his own defense. He has no desire to act in his own defense. Why? He trusts God. He's in total submission to God. To kill that man would be a sin. His power is always under control by the Word of God, the command of God. What is right? This is meekness. Moses. We think of Moses as a courageous, bold, dynamic, forthright leader. He goes in there nose to nose with Pharaoh and he leads his people out. In a great, great exodus from the land of Egypt, God blessed that man with tremendous leadership capability. He devises a system by which all the perhaps 2 million plus people of Israel can be judged. He's a great leader, and yet Numbers 12:3 says, The man Moses was very meek. He was more meek than all the men on the face of the earth. Now, how can you be a great leader... A dynamic leader, a great warrior, a great defender of justice and right. How can you stand nose to nose with the evil Pharaoh of Egypt and still be meek? Because meekness is power under control. He's fearless in his courage and he's bold. He's strong. He's confrontive in his convictions. And yet it's all under control. And he demanded things out of Pharaoh. Let my people go. Well, that's what meekness is. It's power under control. And what our Lord is saying here, and this is what I want you to see in application to your own life. What our Lord is saying is this. If you're in my kingdom, let me put it simply, if you're a Christian, if you love Christ, you are going to give evidence of this kind of self-control. If your life is dominated by what you want, if your life is dominated by your demands and your responses, then perhaps you're not a part of his kingdom. Power under control. Now what is the result of someone who lives like this? Let's go back to that beatitude and see. The result is wrapped up in one word. Blessed, blessed are the meek. The word means happy. True joy. Can we put it simply? Only the meek are really happy. Pride does not make people happy. Self-centeredness does not make people happy. We didn't mention it last week very much, but I, I'm sure you picked up the fact that Sam was my was my lawyer along with another man named David Cooksey in the lawsuit against me. When I was sued by a certain man, Mr. Nally who held me responsible for the suicide death of his son. son killed himself, put a gun to his head, and blew his head off. And um, Mr. Nally decided that that was my fault, that his son committed suicide. Twice that case has been to court, both times they have ruled in our favor against him, because there's no truth to it at all. When someone goes in a closet and puts a gun to their head and blows their head off, that's an act of their own will. But the father has absolutely no ability to control his own emotions. His life is dominated by what he wants, and he wants to get what he wants to get. So, recently he said, I will take John MacArthur to the Supreme Court, and then I will see him in hell. And then he said to a reporter that, The only reason he didn't do to me what he really wanted to do was because he was raised by nuns who taught him it was a sin. Now, there is a man who is literally out of control, right? He doesn't understand power under control. It doesn't matter to him what the Word of God says. He has no trust in God to be equitable, righteous, and just in behalf of him if there is an injustice to make that right. And so he has to control everything in his life, the result of which is the man is absolutely what? Miserable. Miserable. Lives in total misery and distress. No happiness there. Why? Because he's got to go around and get vengeance for every single thing in life that isn't the way he thinks it ought to be. And that's the frustration that faced these Jews. When it wasn't the way it ought to be, they thought they had to make it right. And so they were filled with anger and bitterness and retaliation. You can't live a happy life like that. So the reporter who interviewed him just a few weeks ago comes to me and says, uh, I just talked to him and he hates you and he wants to see you in hell and so on and so on. He said to me, how do you feel about him? And he's cost you hours and hours and he's cost you Uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars have been paid out, although I haven't paid it personally, obviously. Can't get blood out of a turnip. Um, How do you feel about him? I just talked with him, and I know how he feels about you. I said, well, I wish he knew Christ. I said, "Uh, I feel sad for him, because I, I don't think you can be happy living like that. And I don't think there's ever any satisfaction living like that. And even if he won the case, and even if I was out of the picture, I don't think he would be happy. I said, I just feel sorry. I wish he could know the joy of Christ, the peace of God. And the reporter said to me, who's doing the thing that's going to be Thursday night on 2020, maybe. Maybe they'll postpone the week. But anyway, he said to me, I've never had a, a story with such total diversity in the two parties. He says, I, I, when I came here, I thought you would be some raving maniac from what I had pictured. And he said, the diversity is incredible. Furthermore, it's very unusual in a very volatile lawsuit like this not to have everybody hating everybody in sight. But that's the distinctiveness of the Christian life. I'm not commending myself. I'm just saying I've learned through the years to yield to the Spirit of God. That's not me. That's Him. Because in my flash. You know, I'm gonna react just like he's gonna react to what he's doing. He thinks I did to his son. I'm gonna react to him the way he would react to me. But in my heart, I can honestly say I don't have any of that. I just would like him to come to know the Lord. In fact, I'd like him to come to know the Lord and come to Grace Church so I could preach this sermon to him. (laughs) But see that, that's, that's the attitude that brings joy. If you're, if you have to get vengeance all through your life, if you have to retaliate, then you don't, number one, have your power under control. Number two, you don't trust God because God is the one who makes all things right, doesn't he? Is he not a God of justice, equity, and righteousness? Sure. So that the, first, the first result of this kind of attitude is blessedness. That's personal happiness. The second one is you inherit, you inherit the earth. What does that mean? That means you get all of God's blessings. Sure, it has a millennial implication. Sure, it even has an eternal implication, the new heaven and the new earth. But I think it even has a present implication for all things are ours right now in Christ. There's a real sense in which because I belong to the Lord Jesus, I possess the earth. First Corinthians 321, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. They're all yours and you are Christ and Christ is God. I mean, everything is mine. Why? Because I'm a joint heir with Jesus Christ. I possess the best the earth has to offer right now, don't you? I look at God's creation and I say, that belongs to my Father. That's mine. It's only an escrow now. I haven't been able to cash it in yet. But I will. It's promised to me. So, this is the kind of person who knows personal happiness and the fulfillment of all that God has to give. Marvelous thought. We have risen above the curse of the earth and we await the fulfillment of all God's promises to us. Now let me wrap this up. People in his kingdom have this marvelous characteristic. But I want to just take two questions to close things up and just kind of tie everything together. Let's ask this question. Why is it necessary to be meek? Why is it necessary? I'm just going to give you a little list real quick. One, it's commanded by God. Meekness is commanded by God. Zechariah 2.3 says, seek meekness. Seek meekness. It is commanded by God. Secondly, it is necessary if you are to grow spiritually. It is an attitude essential for spiritual growth. Listen to James 1.21. Put away all filthiness and overflowing of wickedness and receive with meekness the engrafted word. In other words, it is the Spirit that receives the word of God and the word of God is that which causes us to grow. It's able to save your lives. The idea there is not to save your soul from hell. You're already a believer. But the idea of saving your life from disaster, from chastening, perhaps even from being taken out of the world by the Lord is a discipline act. But to receive the Word, you receive it with meekness. That is, there is a gentle self-control, there is a humble, teachable spirit that allows you to take in the Word of God. Not everybody's like that. I mean, I've talked to people and counseled people. You give them the Word of God and they reject it. They don't want that. They want to do what they want to do. They're not interested in the application of the Word of God in their life but we need to be meek because it's commanded by God and it's necessary to receive the Word of God and grow. Thirdly, it is necessary to teach others. If you're going to be effective in teaching others, you need to have a sense of meekness, a sense of humility. You need to, to have a spirit that isn't self-centered. In uh, Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.25, in meekness instructing those that oppose. There should be a meekness about the servant of God. There should be a meekness in our, in our preaching and teaching. Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 15, that when anybody asks us a question about our faith, we should be able to give an answer to every man that asks with meekness and a godly fear. So the gentleness of spirit is such an important thing in the teaching process. You can have strong convictions. You can be very bold about them. But you should come across as meek, That is, as one who is humble and not self-centered and self-seeking. Fourthly, it is necessary that we seek meekness because it glorifies God. It honors God. It brings Him praise. In 1 Peter 3, 4, talking about the woman or the wife, it says that she is to be marked out as a person who has the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, then this, which is in the sight of God, of great value. God highly values a meek and quiet spirit, particularly there in a woman, but that meekness is valued wherever it appears. It glorifies God. It brings Him honor because He values it so highly. Another reason that we are to seek meekness is it is, it is consistent with our new life in Christ. It is consistent with our new life in Christ. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12, put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on this, tender mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness. Since you are new in Christ, as the elect of God, you have put on the new man, therefore put on meekness. So what do we say then? We should be meek. Because it is commanded by God, it is necessary to receive God's Word and grow. It is necessary to teach others God's Word. It is of great value to God, therefore it pleases Him, gives Him glory. It is consistent with our new life. Finally, how do I know if I'm meek? Let's give you a little inventory test, and I give it to my own heart as well. Listen and ask yourself these questions, okay? Be honest with yourself. Number one, do I experience self-control? fair question do I have control over my spirit or am I like that city without a wall do I experience self-control I train myself for this I told you that a few months ago when we talked about this matter of self-discipline and you have to do that you have to teach yourself to be controlled do you experience that self-control Or does your flesh and your desire and your emotion and your attitude just run wild? Second question. Am I angry only when God is dishonored? Or am I angry about when people violate my rights? The truth is I'm a sinner. If you really want to know the truth, I don't have any rights. I ought to be dead and in hell. True? True. So I ask myself the question, am I angry only when God is dishonored or am I angry when I'm violated some way? Let me ask you a third question. find out whether you are experiencing meekness, ask yourself this. Do I respond humbly, obediently, and joyfully to the Word of God? Ask yourself that. Do I respond humbly, Obediently and joyfully to the Word of God. Fourth question. In any situation, no matter what it means, do I always seek to make peace? In any situation, no matter what it means, do I always seek to make peace? Am I the peacemaker? The one looking for restoration? The first one to forgive. So these are good questions. They really probe our hearts. Do I experience self-control? Am I angry only when God is dishonored? Do I respond humbly, obediently, and joyfully to the Word? Do I always seek in any circumstance, no matter what the cost, to make peace? Here's a fifth question. Do I take criticism well and love those who give it? Do I take criticism well and love those who give it? So important. If you do, you're meek. You're humble. You're not self-centered. Summing it up, meekness basically means that you realize that in yourself you're nothing. You have no rights. So you've got nothing to protect and nothing to defend. So you live your life for the Lord. And when you are offended, you tell Him. And you love the people who offended you. And when your desires would violate His Word, you, by His Spirit, Control those desires so that God can be glorified. That's meekness. And I trust that in all of our lives, and we've just touched the surface, skipped a lot of material. But I trust in all of our lives we can pursue these things. A mourning over sin, a sense of spiritual poverty apart from Christ, and an attitude of meekness. Let's bow in prayer. Just think of this. Let me read it to you as we close. Someone has written these words. Oh, the happiness of the man who is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. Oh, the happiness of the man or woman who has every instinct, every impulse, and every passion under control because he himself is controlled by God. Oh, the blessedness of the one who has the humility to realize his own ignorance and his own weakness and to depend on God. For such a person is indeed powerful among men. Father, help us to be the people you want us to be. I thank you for every person here, every precious life, every student, faculty member, staff member, guest, friend. I thank you, Lord, for what you want to do in their lives and in our college. And we know, Lord, that it isn't really external. It isn't what kind of buildings we have or what kind of courses we teach. It isn't how well we sing or play or... How good our athletics might be or how lovely the campus or what kind of standards we have on the outside. But the real issues here, as always in your church, are the issues of what are our hearts like. And that's what you want to do in us. As the girl sang earlier, you look on the heart and you want our hearts to be right. Help us to be those who are blessed. Because we know our own spiritual poverty. Because we mourn over our sin and we hate it and we long to turn from it. And because we have our power under control. So that we can be all that you want us to be. Thank you. And bless this day. Fill it with joy and the richness of all your good gifts for Christ's sake. Amen. Have a great day.